The science of cycling performance is always changing, but you already know that. If you've been around cycling for even a few years, you might have changed the way you do something based on a new study or a new trend, what your friend's doing, or even a new product. Coaches are often in the front line when it comes to any new training device or performance interventions and are expected to answer questions regarding new and unfamiliar topics. So as part of developing, it becomes important to keep up with popular claims and scientific research. Hunting around for information is about continually gathering knowledge from external sources and having a finely tuned BS meter because finding quality scientific evidence on the information oversaturated internet is tremendously difficult and time consuming. Knowing this all too well and knowing coaches and athletes are extremely busy, today I've got a process to help you find, analyze and interpret peer reviewed research. Plus I've got a shortcut that can help you learn faster. Yoho, and welcome back to Ride Better Faster, a show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. I'll tell you straight up, I am no scientist. The closest I get is my undergrad psychology degree, but that's a far cry from a scientist that deals with the process of science day in, day out. But being a cycling coach with a keen interest in performance, progression, and validating the methods I prescribe... I've had to train myself in identifying and interpreting peer-reviewed research. I've shared part of this process along the way on this very podcast, getting into the weeds and raw data of interesting research articles. Not only has this given me an appreciation for science, but also the sports scientists that run the studies. Being no stranger to giving my blood, sweat and tears to these people, I've come to see how important they are in progressing our sport. That's not the only part of the story, though. While the research is done by sports scientists, coaches also play a big part in making athletes perform their best. I won't harp on the next point too long, but I think both coaches and sports scientists have to have an understanding of each other's fields. I believe it's important for a coach to have some practical experience and or a basic knowledge of sports science. Coaches need to understand the basic scientific principles that form the foundation of training, and they need to understand the research process the need for sequential accumulation of knowledge, the importance of reliability and validity, and so on. And on the other side, if the sports scientist has some basic coaching training, they can start to talk the same language and we can progress our sport further. Now, here's the point I've been building to. Basic sports science knowledge will help coaches understand and apply the latest sports science information and will also help them implement this research in the real world, which is the most important part to me. That's because I'm a coach, but really, my job is to take the new research, figure out if it's useful, and then if it is, I have to decide how I'm going to adapt it, communicate it, and take the risk of failure on it. And so here we are, a whole podcast dedicated to helping you understand scientific articles, or more specifically, peer-reviewed studies with a quick and easy process to collect information and make educated decisions on unfamiliar topics. Like I mentioned, I've been doing part of my learning in public on this podcast, but what's behind the section is this framework I use to filter the information in each study. Many years ago, I found an article in the Strength and Conditioning Journal from 2011 that proposed a method for doing this called the RAPID method. RAPID stands for Recognize the Question, Assess Popular Claims, Practical Fact Gathering, Interpret Research Articles, and draw personal conclusions. 
We're going to take this five-step method and apply it to the topic of recovery or more specifically a value for readiness that's supplied from a product called the Super Bowl. Step one of the rapid method is to recognize the question. When presented with a question from one of your athletes or your own curiosity, of course, make sure you clearly recognize what's being asked. Once clarified, write down the question concisely. The example here, what are the scientifically documented effects benefits of super op devices on recovery? Step two, assess popular claims. Use secondhand sources such as search engines, blogs, forums, and professional opinions to gather keywords and basic subject knowledge, but don't form conclusions at this point. Even if secondhand sources cite specific lab studies, do not assume that the claims are accurately referenced. In our example, simply went to Google and typed in SuperOptM device to find out what the hell this thing is. I first go to their website and see its full name is the Super Compensation Optimizer, and they've got pictures of Team Astana and Bahrain Merida, and I find this. With only one quick morning measurement, SuperOp shows you on a scale from 1 to 100 your organic readiness to a new workout so you can train smarter, tune the intensity of the, and the quality of your training session to get the best response from your body, avoid risks, and get the best improvement every time. Okay, so I start to see that it's a hardware product, an integrated Bluetooth wrist, stick with me here, Spygonometer, and software phone-based app system based on taking a one-minute measurement of heart rate and blood pressure and calculates your metabolic stress and delivers a number from zero to 100, which they call organic readiness. I also read this heading. 97% of super op users improve their performance. BS meter activated. I dig a little further. Check out their working principles and find out who the company and person behind the product are and the assumptions that they're basing the product on. I also skulk around their social media for signs of life and social proof. A product like this, if it's so revolutionary, should have some super fans by now. And then I just go back and do more searches to try and find more websites. And I only find a couple of other things. The most interesting one is I find an article in Cycling Weekly from 2016. But that article seems like a bit of a soft review. And that's all I've got for this first part of my investigation. Moving on to step three, we start the practical fact gathering. And practical fact gathering requires distinguishing between original research peer-reviewed lab studies, and second-hand research, the opinions from the websites, the blogs, the books, etc. Use original, not second-hand research as the foundation of your opinions because these articles must undergo expert inspection before publication, aka the peer review process. This is the time when you search and filter based on the type of research done on the topic. Where do you search? This part isn't as straightforward as I'd like to be. You can go to the big guns like PubMed and Google Scholar that provide original research articles. Sometimes they offer entire articles, but minimally give the title and abstract free of charge. So a big part of the problem here is that not all journals fit into these two search engines. You have to look a little bit broader. You have to get a little creative. Twitter is a good place 
as well as any specific associations or things linked with the area that you're looking at. But back to when you find an abstract, just reading an abstract won't help you understand the context of the study, how it relates to the previous research on the topic. Context is critically important when discussing new research, which is why abstracts are often misleading and do not always include all pertinent information. Universities and institution library websites provide most articles free for students, staff, and employees. But what if you're outside of that? Maybe there's a scientific or professional organization that will provide members online access to their publications, but overall getting hold of useful information is difficult. I've got a shortcut to this, but I'll talk more about it a little later on in this episode. Now, it's time to take a little detour into the different types of studies. There's a bunch of different types of studies. I'll try and help you better understand all of them, but I will put most of my focus, like I said, on experimental research. Original research articles generally come in three forms, evidence summaries, observational studies, and experimental studies. Evidence summaries include review articles like meta-analysis and systematic reviews. Both are a synthesis of all relevant studies. Read these review articles cautiously because they provide only one author's synopsis on the subject. Their reference sections can be used to dramatically improve search speed because they supply in-depth lists of relevant single papers. And single papers is where we start to get the most information from. The next two types of research articles are single scientific papers, and this is detailed descriptions of one study. So firstly, observational studies. These include articles like cohort studies and case reports, where they follow along a group or an individual and track habits and make detailed accounts over time. Then there's experimental studies, such as randomized control trials and non-randomized control trials. Randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials are commonly seen as the gold standard of research. In such trials, the participants are randomly assigned to either an intervention group, which will receive the intervention, or a control group, which will receive a placebo. And neither they or nor the researchers running the experiment know which participants belong to which group. A quick note, not all studies are created equal. Poorly conducted trials can lead to exceptional results. It is usually best to wait and see if those results can be replicated before drawing a conclusion, or at least develop your opinion only after obtaining several single papers, given that one paper does not prove anything but many articles sharing similar conclusions build a strong case. Ideally, you want research to sit at the nexus of a high level of evidence, a notable magnitude of effect, and a very high consistency of results. But that's just me overcomplicating it. Basically, you want a lot of studies saying that there was a big impact from the thing. We'll get to how to interpret research articles in the next step, step four. But what about our example? Well, not much showed up. I went hunting for primary resources. In fact, only one study came up. So it's a little early to tell. And this could be where you stop. And that is your answer. The old too early to tell line. But we're going to push on for the sake of going through this entire process. Now, step four, interpret research articles. And this is where I have to give you a fair warning. We're going to get nerdy. Well, nerdy-er. And honestly, only practice here will help you speed through this part, but I'll do my best to give you the basics. A paper is divided into sections. 
Those sections vary between papers, but they usually include an abstract, an introduction, a section on methods, which provides demographic information and presents the design of the study, and a conclusion, which is often split between results and discussion. The abstract is a brief summary that covers the main points of the study. And as I mentioned earlier, since there's a lot of information to pack into a few paragraphs, an abstract can unintentionally be misleading because it doesn't provide context. An abstract does not often make clear the limitations of an experiment or how applicable the results are in the real world. Before making a call based on using a specific study as evidence, make sure you read the whole paper because it might turn out to be weak evidence. Okay, so now let's get to the nuts and bolts of the paper. Reading the introduction. The introduction sets the stage. It should clearly identify the research question the authors hope to answer with their study. Here, the authors usually summarise previous related research. Watch out here because they're not complete reviews and introductions also explain why they decided to investigate further. Although this is a good place to find other pernient resources, references, do not draw conclusions here. Focus on the purpose of the study, usually stated clearly in the first and or last paragraph. For our example, the ability to identify faster or slower multifactorial recovery snapshots may help with the prescription of individualized recovery strategies and training. So researchers set out to find a quick and reliable measure and no previous study had assessed the super-op. Therefore, the aim of the study was to assess the effectiveness and sensitivity of the super-op, and the authors hypothesize that the super-op is effective in evaluating the recovery state of professional cyclists in order to plan effective training. By the way, just like a list of references in a meta-study, introductions are a great place to find additional reading material since the authors will frequently reference previous relevant published studies. And just like that, we're at the methods section. And this is where we start to get to the good stuff, especially if you're a training nerd. A paper's methods or materials and methods section provides information on the study's design and participants. Ideally, it should be so clear and detailed that other researchers can repeat the study without needing to contact the authors. You will need to examine this section to determine the study's strengths and limitations, which both affect how the study's results should be interpreted. The information from this section will help you decide how relevant the study is to you and your athletes. When reading this section, focus primarily on the subject population, the age, gender, athletes, non-athletes, training status, etc., the measured variables that may or may not change, VO2 max, strength, muscle size, hormone concentrations, performance, etc., and interventions, the training, the feeding, or whatever they're doing to these people. More specifically, this is where you need to learn about the length of the study, the dosage used, the training sessions, the testing methods, and so on. Ideally, as I said, this information should be so clear and detailed that other researchers can repeat the study without needing to contact the authors. Now, maybe you don't need to spend so much time here unless you want to do things like convert the percentage of VO2 max intensities into percentage of FTP, etc. just to put it in language you understand. But definitely take note on how measurements were made to allow comparisons between similar studies. One trick of studies that want to find an effect, sometimes they can serve as marketing material for a product example, but often simply because studies want to show an effect and it's more likely to get published, controversial, mostly true though, 
is to collect many endpoints, then to make the paper about the endpoints that showed an effect, either by downplaying the other endpoints or not mentioning them at all. And to prevent such data dredging or phishing, many scientists push through the pre-registration of studies. Sniffing out the tricks used by less scrupulous authors is part of the skills you'll need to develop to assess published studies. In our example, the participants were 10 professional male cyclists. There were some stats listed like height, age, cycling experience, and weekly days of training. No VO2 max, but that's cool. They're already pros. It is more relevant when a study says healthy males or amateur cyclists. But anyway, now we move to the intervention. They administered a seven-day exercise program just after three days of very low-intensity training. And I don't need to go into too much detail, but know that they did cover the intensity as a percentage of VO2 max and the actual training sessions done. Eight-minute warm-up and 40 minutes long. (coughs) We will revisit this part for sure. The measured variables are also important to note as these were the super op TM readings, blood pressure and heart rate. Furthermore, they had to self-put into the super op the previous day's exercise session, the data, the time and duration, and the previous day's overall self-perceived condition as colored by emoticons. Finally, athletes had done a self-note down from consequent super op readings with their organic readiness, which is the super op value from a proprietary algorithm. (coughs) Cough, cough. Now, interpreting the results, the most important section, and where we get to the stats. Now, determining whether an appropriate statistical analysis was used for a given trial is an entire field of study. So we suggest you don't sweat the details. Try to focus on the big picture. Look carefully at tables and figures as they illustrate the study's major findings. Be sure to check on the vertical axis, the y-axis, the scale the results are represented on what may at first look like a large change could in fact be very minor. But before we go any further, let's clear up two common misunderstandings. You may have read that an effect was significant, only to later discover that it was very small. Similarly, you may have read that there was no effect found at all Yet, when you read the paper, you find out the intervention group had increased power output more than the placebo group. So what gives? The problem is simple. Those quirky scientists don't speak like normal people do. For scientists, significant doesn't mean important. It means statistically significant. An effect is significant if the data collected over the course of a trial would be unlikely if there really was no effect. In other words, although a study may show an increase or a decrease in a given measurement, it should not be considered significant unless determined statistically. And to explain that, we get to p-values. And we need to go through this. And trust me, when I say I'm the last person who wants to take a deep dive into stats, I am the last person that wants to take a deep dive into stats. I loved stats so much at university, I did it twice only because I failed the first time. But they're not so complicated if you're just reading results. And again, they're important. So hold on. So most often an effect is said to be significant if the statistical analysis run by the researchers post-study delivers a p-value that isn't higher than a certain threshold set by the researchers pre-study. We'll call this the threshold of significance. 
Understanding how to interpret p-values correctly can be tricky, even for specialists, but here's an intuitive way to think about them. Think about a coin toss. Flip a coin 100 times and you'll get roughly a 50-50 split of heads and tails. Not terribly surprising. But what if you flip this coin 100 times and get heads every time? Now that would be surprising. You can think of p-values in terms of getting all heads when flipping a coin. A p-value of 5%, p equals 0.05, is no more surprising than getting all heads on four coin tosses. A p-value of 0.5, where p equals 0.005, is no more surprising than getting all heads on eight coin tosses. And a p-value of 0.05, where a p-value equals 0.0005, is no more surprising than getting all heads on 11 coin tosses. Make sense? And to clear something up, contrary to popular belief, the P in P value doesn't stand for probability. The probability of getting four heads in a row is 6.25%, not 5%. So as I explained, an effect is significant if the data collected over the course of a trial would be unlikely if there really was no effect. Now we can add the lower the P value under the threshold of significance, the more confident we can be that an effect is significant. And finally, keep in mind that while important, p-values aren't the final say on whether a study's conclusions are accurate. Because if researchers are too eager to find an effect in their study, it may resort to data phishing. They may try to lower p-values in various ways. For instance, they may run different analyses on the same data and only report the significant p-values, or they may recruit more and more participants until they get a statistically significant result. These bad scientific practices are known as p-hacking or selective reporting. When evaluating the strength of a study's design, imagine yourself in the researcher's shoes and consider how you could torture a study to make it say what you want and get all those sweet, sweet research grants. After all of that, are you still with me? All right, let's keep going. Back to our example. Remember, the main purpose of this study was to assess the effectiveness and sensitivity of the super op. So the morning organic readiness values showed significant differences between days, which considering how the seven days were laid out with mostly alternating heavy and light intensities, they were looking for the differences between days as their indicator of effectiveness. So I'll give you one example on day two after low intensity training, the organic readiness value was higher than day four after a VO2 max test. The level of significance or the threshold of significance was P is equal to or less than 0.05. So ta-da, P equals 0.033. We can flip it and look for higher values after recovery days as well. And this was also significant, where P equals 0.006. So we're in the realm of very significant to highly significant, with the organic readiness value showing the super op is sensitive to the type of training day. The morning after hard days, organic readiness values were lower. This is the recovery state was worse. Now we're in the home stretch for this study, understanding the discussion. And while it's sometimes tempting, 
skipping right to this section after reading the abstract often leads to misinterpretation and the spread of misinformation, especially since researchers are often tempted to give results a certain spin because, as I already mentioned it, articles that show interesting results are more likely to get published. Never read the results without first reading the methods section. Knowing how researchers arrived at a conclusion is as important as the conclusion itself. Your primary concerns in the discussion or conclusion section are the first and last paragraphs, which typically summarize major findings. The remaining portions are the author's opportunity to propose mechanisms behind the findings, recommend future research, and suggest practical applications. Often, they will compare their study to previous ones and suggest new experiments that could be conducted based on their study results. It is critically important to remember that a single study is just one piece of the overall puzzle. Where does this fit within the body of evidence on this topic is a good question to ask yourself. Like the introduction, the conclusion provides valuable context and insight. If it sounds like the researchers are extrapolating to demographics beyond the scope of their study or are overstating the results, don't be afraid to read the study again, especially the methods section. And read cautiously. It's an important consideration in distinguishing between correlation and causal relationships. Two variables significantly increasing, decreasing means some association between them, correlation, not necessarily one caused the other, causal. This distinction is often vague in the discussion. For these reasons, placing greater emphasis on the results rather than the discussion section is crucial. In our example, pretty straightforward. The discussion has lots of relevant topics focused around its limitations. Things like the results are encouraging, but should be validated using a cohort larger than 10 subjects and an evaluation longer than seven days. This was my first thought after reading the methods section. Also, they note an important question for future studies is to determine whether there are any differences regarding its use between amateur athletes and professional athletes, and the super op may have the potential of being an essential tool in improving the sport training racing recovery cycle, but further work with regard to its functionality is needed. Also, the authors declare that no commercial or financial relationships with super op Another one of my initial questions when a single device study like this pops up. Okay, so we made it to the final step. Step five, drawing personal conclusions. You remember that topic we started with right at the beginning? That's what we've got to come back to. Step four is something that you have to repeat over and over again with different studies. But eventually you get down to the point where after finding and analyzing articles, you form personal conclusions based on your interpretation. And start by asking yourself the following three questions. Number one, do I agree with the article's conclusion? Do not feel forced to accept the conclusions of the authors. After scrutinizing the results, how do you interpret the study findings? It can be helpful to skip the discussion section before answering this question and then going back so you aren't influenced by the authors, but you get a feel for what's going to be said anyway over time. Our example Yes, I do agree with the conclusions. Okay, there were some positive takeaways and significant results, so it could support athletes and coaches in planning effective training, but more work needs to be done and further larger studies with harder loads need to be carried out in the future. Number two, do I agree with conclusions from secondhand resources regarding this article? Considering the only source of secondhand information was, well, there was two, there was a one-minute YouTube clip where someone just filmed it from different angles. And then there was the review on Cycling Weekly. And it's kind of hard 
not to agree. It all lines up at this stage. An important thing to note here is the study was done in 2020. The Cycling Weekly article was from 2016. So the review from 2016 wasn't backed up at the time by this research. It was a two-week trial by a journalist. So that is definitely something to consider here. And the third question, does this directly apply to my athlete or myself? Do the study's subjects share similar characteristics as your athletes? Gender, age, training, history, etc. If not, be careful when applying the results and conclusions to your athletes. Sometimes finding exact matches is not possible. And in this case, applying results from studies with comparable subjects is okay. For a pro, of course, it's comparable, this study, but the training done in the intervention isn't. I don't think any pro does this type of training. Still, it is an accurate population to work from if you're suggesting it to a pro or an elite level cyclist. So when it comes down to it, would I recommend it? I think really for me, I'd have to take a step back and think about what other measures of readiness are there that are easy to come across with what the athlete already has, things like HRV taken from a Bluetooth chest strap and compare that to this because this, it's early days. So we don't know if it is going to be as useful or more useful than what is kind of already out there with a measure of HRV. So wrapping this up, there's no substitute for appraising the study yourself. So where do I finish with this one? Overall, expecting coaches to habitually scrutinize All peer-reviewed human performance research is impractical and unrealistic. Yet, paradoxically, athletes rely almost exclusively on coaches, not researchers, to answer various training, diet, and supplement questions. Coaches must therefore transform from passive consumers to critical evaluators by developing skills to find, analyze, and interpret peer-reviewed research. And I plant my flag there. Now, As I said at the start, I've got a shortcut for all of this, and it's this. It's an offer from me. Over the years, I've longed for a few different services and products that would make this process more streamlined. Examples are putting all research articles in one place instead of having to visit all of these journal sites or rely on Twitter or someone tweeting things here and there, or have someone simplify and transform all of the measurements into common cycling terms or just getting the latest articles sorted and reviewed on a monthly basis. And these are problems that I'm trying to solve with my new membership program, SemiPro Plus. It starts with two problems. First is that in the age of information overload, expertise is not knowing lots of stuff. Rather, it's the ability to sort the useful from the useless, which, as I've covered, really is a big part of a coach's job. And the second problem is what I've been talking about this entire episode. That is, going over and assessing just one paper can take a lot of work, hours in fact. Knowing the basics of study assessment is important, but I also understand that you've got a life to lead and no single person has the time to read all of the studies coming out. And certain studies can benefit from being read by professionals that understand the end use. I want SemiPro Plus to be a go-to place to keep you on top of the latest and the best cycling research. There are a few ways I could have started this, but I've started with a monthly cycling science digest 
that has the best analysis of the latest and most important cycling research. This is supported now with audio deep dives on this research in a members-only podcast feed, which will include anything from interviews with first authors to experiments with interventions and members-only Q&A episodes. I'm also in the process of building a searchable database of published cycling-related studies, so you get access to a continually updated database of cycling-related studies, and you can filter these by article type, cycling-specific topic, population demographics, and more. I want this to be the place where you trust us to examine each study with utmost care and report on it clearly, concisely, and accurately. Now, this is built with coaches in mind, but even if you're not a coach, you can benefit from this membership. If you care about performance and primary sources of information, then this is also for you. If that sounds interesting, you can check out more info and sign up at semiprocycling.com forward slash plus. That's semiprocycling.com forward slash P-L-U-S. And by the way, it's cheap at the moment because I want you in the program I'll be putting the price up later on in the year once everything is rolling, but as a foundation member, I'll lock in your price for life. Also, right now, if you sign up, you get three performance guides, while SemiPro Plus is a great way to stay on top of the latest research. Sometimes you want explicit instructions on what to do, when to do it, and how much to do. So it comes with the Max Energy System, fueling your performance, a fast recovery protocol, recovering properly, and a supplement performance guide, boosting your internal systems. The performance guides are updated once a year and they provide you with concise directions. And I just finished these at the end of December with the latest science for 2021. So one more time, to join or learn more, head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash plus. That's semiprocycling.com forward slash P-L-U-S. Okay, it's time once again for The Chaser, the segment of the show where I talk about something that is probably unreleased, untested, or has nothing to do with cycling, and this time, heated pants. That's right, heated pants, which sounds pretty good right about now for anyone in the Northern Hemisphere, but they're not for riding in the cold. They were developed for downtime between the warm-up and track events. Made by the clothing manufacturer Hub Design, the concept was created by their own innovation group they call the Fellowship of Speed. This group brings together sports engineers, physiologists, nutritionalists, Olympians, experts in aerodynamics and biomechanics. The goal of the group is to explore all areas and opportunities in swimming and cycling for improvement and then improve them. And their goal? Faster athletes. And these pants are one of the products to come out of that mission. The pants are there to offset the gap between the warm-up and event to keep the athlete's leg muscles warm with heating elements focused on the calves, quads, and hamstrings. And the temperature can be maintained at 43 degrees Celsius, which based on a paper from 2015 found that this is the optimum temperature for performance and reduced risk of injury. This research done by fellow Steve Faulkner, sport engineering and physiology at Nottingham Trent University, concluded there is often a lot of downtime between warming up and being on the start line of a race. So the heated trouser was developed to prevent the benefits of your warm-up being lost or your training being wasted. The heated trousers maintain elevated muscle temperature post-warm-up, leading to a 9.6% increase in cycling power compared to a control group. There are also claims benefiting recovery, but I won't get into them. 
Now, they must be getting some attention because it was the Danish pursuit team that was using them when they smashed the team pursuit world record three times at the event, winning the gold medal in the final in three minutes and 44 seconds. But they are the only country using the pants. But that record, well, this is something I've started to toy with regarding keeping the core temp up between the warm-up and the race. But actively warming the legs is so obvious when you think about it. From what I can see in their web shop, you can't buy them yet. So it's time to break out the heating pads for the next time trial. And phew, we got there. That's it. So Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out our membership program, SemiPro Plus, where you get cutting-edge cycling research and analysis every month. Head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash plus. That's semiprocycling forward slash P-L-U-S. And until next time, ride well. 